you take your seats, I want to invite you to take an attitude of prayer as we go to the Lord's Word. Heavenly Father, as we come this morning in a continuation of what you have given to us and for us in the Sermon of the Mount, the Gospel of Matthew, I pray, Lord, that our hearts right now would be readied to hear what you have for us. I pray, Lord, that our minds and that our entirety of who we are and how you've created us and your image will come together to a fuller understanding of the life that you desire for us to have. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, as we head into our scripture reading this morning, I will tell you, week after week in preparation, things are difficult. These, uh, and especially today, we are going to spend time in the Lord's Word on a topic sometimes that uh, doesn't take place up front. A topic that uh, is reserved for having uh, smaller meetings or having pastoral counseling, all of those kinds of things, oftentimes we don't address things such as this manner from the front. So I'm giving you a heads up this morning that what we're going to talk about, if you are not uncomfortable, if you are not pushed, if you are not challenged, uh, quite frankly, you're not listening, okay? So let's buckle up as we head into God's Word this morning. And if we remember last week, the Lord is talking to us about murder and, and being angry. And we had to come to the realization that all of us within our hearts have an anger problem. And Jesus continues with the condition of the heart, moving and transitioning from anger into adultery this morning. So let's read uh, together. I want to invite you to the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 5. Uh, I am not creative. The title of the sermon is Lust, Divorce, and Oaths for you confirmation students. So we're going to start in verse 27 and end in verse 37. Here is the word of the Lord. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard, it, heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath. But fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is 
God's throne or by earth, for it is his footstool or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So as we come to the word of Jesus this morning, I will tell you right up front and acknowledge we are not going to be able to cover and dissect and go through every square inch of what we just read. But we're going to do our best to make our way through this. Jesus brings forth through the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. And if you're an underliner in your Bibles or if you're taking notes, I want to encourage you to write these two words down. Because we're going to underline and ask ourselves the understanding of what it actually means when we hear the word look and lustfully. We have to remember here, the gospel writer of Matthew is translating Jesus speaking into, from Aramaic into Greek. With a close attention to detail, when we read the word look, something is taking place there. When Jesus says, but I tell you that anyone, uh, anyone who looks at a woman, anyone who looks, the word look has the meaning that hangs on. This is not a simply glancing about, simply looking, but this is a, a look that hangs on and holds on and sinks its claws into flesh, if you will. A look that holds on and focuses with passionate desires for the other person. Jesus is saying the man who looks at the woman but we know this isn't just about a man looking at a woman. This is also a woman who looks at a man. This look is one who passionately holds on to. And it completely rocks the Jews' understanding as it does for us today. Jesus is telling them, and he's telling us, that cheating begins in the heart, not in the action. And when we take a step further. When we read this, I ask that you would think about our culture and our society. When we think about looking, that longing and holding on to, and the lustfully, that second word to underline, is simply this, a strong sexual desire for that other person. So you have a person that looks at somebody that wants to hold on to them and then the lustfully is that strong sexual desire to have and to hold. As the Jews were hearing these words and as we hear them today, we have to think about the life that we live and the world we live in. So there are two different views that I'm going to propose for us here this morning. The first is the consumer view of our society and world, and the second is the biblical ethic and biblical view of sex. Consumer marketing is not concerned about what Jesus is saying here. The biblical view of sex 
is simply this. There should be no sex outside of the marriage covenant. The covenant of a husband and a wife, the covenant they make at their wedding, is more than a piece of legal paper and an emotional decision. Your covenant binds two people together, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, until death shall do us part. Furthermore, a biblical covenant of marriage says it's no longer about me and myself and my selfish desires. The covenant and a relationship is much more important than one person's selfish desires. And from that, a couple of things arise. A biblical marriage covenant provides safety for each person to be themselves. You don't have to put on a face or impress the other person. You get to be the authentic you. The second thing is a covenant provides commitment. Despite the fleeting feelings and the hardships, a couple grows deeper in and through both the joys and the struggles by not walking away. And the third thing, a covenant provides freedom. The mutual freedom to grow and develop as a person and as a couple without the fear of the other person leaving. Now the worldview and ethic of sex and relationships is consumerism. And here's how. A consumer relationship says everything is good as long as you're meeting my needs. In one sense, we can use the example of shopping for insurance. Who's going to give me the best rate? Who's going to give me the best coverage of what I want? A consumer relationship is based upon the judgment to the self. If the other person is not adjusting to me and my needs, I'm out of here. The consumer relationship keeps someone there to fulfill the other person's needs. Where the Bible says sex is confined in the covenant relationship between man and wife and marriage, the world says sex is a consumer good. Now think with me here for a moment in the change of tide in our culture, not just 20, 30, 40 years ago, it would have been unheard of a couple living together before they got married. Marriage, the sacred covenant, where sex is a part of God's plan for the family union. It's really hard to hear of young couples or any couple today that is not living together. Now we might say, hmm, maybe they're on to something. Maybe they're wise and thinking, trying to figure things out before they actually get married. But we'll get to that in a second. I want to first talk about how good marriage is and why God designed it and how sex is one part of how good marriage is. Remember what happens in Genesis 2? God puts Adam into a deep sleep and removes one of his rib bones. Remember what happens when Adam wakes up and there's Eve standing there? He didn't say, whoa. No, he rejoices and breaks out into song, finally, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. 
He rejoices. And by the way, they were naked, right? Can't forget that part. And so you have Adam and Eve right off the get-go. And Adam rejoices. And within, the, within that covenant of marriage, God blesses. That's one of the first things God says to them is, be blessed and multiply, be fruitful. And then also the tree part, right? The fruit, we can't forget about that. Whereas the world now says, don't worry about marriage. Live together, have sex. See if that other person is compatible for you. And the majority of couples to this day, they don't inadvertently know that actually living together before you're married, the statistics on that, you are in a higher risk of divorce than a couple that doesn't live together before marriage. Those who cohabitate are living in a nonstop interview. Now you might say, well, no, no, Pastor Ian, that's not, that's not us. We're super cool and chill. We have pizza. We drink beer. We just hang out. But think about this. If the other person isn't fitting the perception or the desire of that other person, they have all the freedom to leave. There's nothing binding there, holding them together. Maybe some shared utilities. The young believe that living together gives them better odds in surviving marriage because it lets you figure out the quirks of the other person. But those practices have failed over and over. Research over the last 40 years that has been taken across the U.S., study after study proves that living together before marriage doesn't improve those chances of not being divorced. One of the big reasons is that there's no mutual agreement. There's no set direction on the relationship. It's solely based on giving or getting what you want, even if it's just a roof over somebody's head. And we know relationships are hard. But when you live in this kind of a consumer, sex ethic, this kind of cultural relationship, first, you're not free to be yourself. The elephant in the room is the what if. What if I'm not found attractive anymore? What if I'm not fulfilling the other person's desires and wants and so on and so forth. You fill in the blank. The what if. It's all conditional. The second thing is there's a lack of commitment. If it doesn't work out or if I don't like you anymore, we'll just go our separate ways. And then the third, there's no freedom. These kinds of consumer relationships... Tyler, we all right? Mic check. Good. All right, we're back on. Maybe that's what the Lord wanted me to be muted for right there. <laughs> Again, there's no freedom. These kinds of consumer relationships base the relationship on an emotion and feelings, and we know that feelings are fleeting and they're not concrete. But when we take a step back once again, why and what Jesus is saying here. The sexual desire is to be for your spouse within marriage 
not someone outside of your marriage or outside of the marriage covenant. And lust brings about all these self-isolating greed and wants and desires, something or someone that it's not yours. This lust brings about a, an addicting and a fantasizing characteristic as well. And one topic in particular, one that is not talked about enough, is that of our sexualized culture with pornography and masturbation. Pornography and masturbation is a place where a person lustfully isolates themselves, often where no other person is needed. It's the opposite of biblical sex. It's trying to fulfill a need in a wrong way. How is that, we might ask? Pornography has the impact of setting within one's mind an unrealistic expectation of how a relationship should be, especially biblical marriage. Studies have shown that men who are addicted to pornography and masturbation are less particular to be in a relationship. Why live in the real world when I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, through fantasy and my little hidden secret? But also, porn impacts women to accommodate and perform sexual behaviors in the style of pornography. And yet, that's not just all. Because all of this leads to another real issue within our culture, and that's sex trafficking. And if you don't think this is a real issue, let me offer some statistics, both here in Iowa and the entire U.S., and this is taken directly from Chains Interrupted, a nonprofit fighting human trafficking in eastern Iowa and the U.S. The number of identified human trafficking victims is on the rise in Iowa. Multiple area police departments, hospitals, churches, schools, and community organizations have reported serving human trafficking victims in the Cedar Rapids area. The National Human Trafficking Hotline received 221 calls from Iowa alone in 2021 and 86 Iowa-based human trafficking cases. Of the cases reported to the Human Trafficking Hotline for Iowa, half are reports from minors. One out of every three teenagers on the streets as well as on runways are approached for commercial sexual exploitation within 48 hours. However, the Iowa Attorney General's office states that the experience in Iowa is closer to 36 hours. In one study, 74% of the victims of human trafficking said they were in the foster care system. Today, there are around 415 100,000 children in the foster care system in the United States, with more than 615 referral made in Cedar Rapids over the last year. And then the last one. Creighton University did a study on Backpage.com prior to its takedown, published in February 2017, and discovered 1,350 unique individuals advertised for sale for sex online every month in Iowa. Experts estimate between 18 and 70% of those individuals were victims of human trafficking. 
all of this is just a sliver of our highly sexualized culture. We read statistics and we see it everywhere and we're not immune to the conversations, brothers and sisters. Not one of us is. For one, I think it's where all of our issues have come. Christians have ignored or clung to the worldview of this consumer relationship. I mean, think about our own congregation, our own denomination. How many years has the United Methodist denomination gone in circles about human sexuality? I'll help you. The first general conference of 1972, that's 50 years. 50 years that's been an echo chamber of conversation about human sexuality. Now, if that's not enough, look at the last five years of our culture, and we don't even have to go back that far. Just even this last week, Wednesday, 47 schools protested in a legislation. Now, I'm not up here to be political in any way, shape, or form. I'm up here to say that was done with a lot of sexual connections, a lot of things talking about human sexuality. We are focusing so much on human sexuality both in and outside of the church. Now, there's challenges. We understand that. There's ways that we need to grow, ways that we need to pray and be there. We know that. The point that I'm making and trying to make is that there are challenges both in the culture, both within the church, regarding sexuality and the focus on sex. So you need to know, we need to know as Christians, what does the Lord say about sex? What does He say? How are we supposed to live our lives right here in the time that He's given us? It's like Romans 1 and the here and now. So what do we do with all of this? We land right back where we started with Jesus. Now, mind you, all of that was just the first two verses. We still have a lot more to go, okay? If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, there's a location uh, where Jesus is talking that they, uh, back in the Old Testament, it was used for sacrifice for children and things like that. And, and as we read through the New Testament, it was recaptured and, and rededicated to God. It has always been known as a place, uh, uh, a smug place. It's where they burned garbage. It is just, it was a horrible place. So they used that as a real life hell. And that's one of the places that he is pointing them to right here. Now, is Jesus literally saying, gouge your eye out and cut your hand off? No. He's using this as a hyperbole. He's expressing the seriousness of this. He's expressing how you and I need to pay attention of what's going on and, and what we're doing with our hearts. If there is pornography that you're looking at, Cut it out. Find accountability. 
Same with masturbation. If there is a, an affair, if there is something taking place outside of your covenant marriage with your spouse, confess, repent, cut it out. Talk to your spouse. Bring in the accountability. Jesus is saying this is how serious it is. Jesus is saying if the look and the lust and adultery is finding you and is rooting itself in your heart, cut it out. And then we read verse 31. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her a victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said the people, to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is by God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Both this section on divorce and oaths is appropriately placed here. Jesus talks about adultery, talks about looking and lusting and the adultery, and then he moves straight into divorce and the oaths. He's just expounding once again on the severity of adultery. It's not found in the outward action alone, but it's at the starting line, the heart. Teachers of the Old Testament law in Jesus' day were permitted and give permission for divorce to take place if the wife didn't dress how the husband liked, whether she was too old or couldn't have kids. Talk about a conditional relationship. And taking the biblical covenant of marriage to mistreatment. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 24. Listen to this. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves her, his house she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes a, her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then the first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land of the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Now, some might use that in a way to portray a misunderstanding of what Jesus is saying here. And the biblical view of marriage doesn't place the man above the woman or the woman above the man. You remember Genesis 2, the rib that is taken from Adam? Woman means helpmate. Adam means dirt. I'd rather have the name helpmate than dirt, but together, side by side, 
Now, of course, there's going to be moments in life where one has to go in front of the other as far as their skills or gifts, protection, nurturing. There are ways that Amy has patience and nurturing that I do not. And I have to come alongside her, follow her. Jesus is tying the understanding to oaths. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Relationships are designed and purposed from God to serve and worship Him together. Oh, how we've missed the mark. To bring it home this morning, we have covered a lot of ground and we could have multiple sermons to continue in this. Sex inside the covenant of marriage reflects that of Romans 7 and Ephesians 5. And yet, sex outside the covenant of marriage ruins the self and turns the person into a consumer. The covenant is so important. It brings two together, holds two together in sickness and in health. So important that the covenant that God started so long ago in marriage, God uses a covenant just like that. The night in which Jesus was with his disciples in that upper room, as they were talking and discussing, Jesus took a loaf of bread and he lifted it and gave thanks to his Father in heaven and to his disciples and to you and I and said, take and eat, for this is my body broken for you. And in the same way, he took a cup and he lifted that cup to his Father in heaven and said, take and drink from this, each one of you, for this is my blood, the new covenant which is poured out for you and for many, the forgiveness of sins. Do this and remembrance me. So brothers and sisters, this morning we come to partake in the, the sacrament of the covenant that Christ has established with us. That we would be one with Him. That we would allow His Spirit into our lives to move in and through this world we live in. Not in, in fear and timidity, but rejoicing in the knowledge of our Savior rejoicing that he has died on the cross for us, that he is raised from the grave, that he has ascended into heaven, has, has sent his Holy Spirit. And so as we come forward this morning, I pray that you would open your heart to the Lord. I don't know what's going on in there, but God does. So as you come to partake of the bread and of the juice, Remember the cost, his death for yours. For he loves you. And we know that through the sacrament. So let us pray. As I pray, I want to invite our communion helpers to please come forward. Heavenly Father, as we come to take
from the bread and of the cup. Move within our hearts through your Holy Spirit once again, Lord. Show us, reveal to us what we need to know. And Lord, draw close to us as we desire each and every moment to have a relationship with you. So we praise you, God, that you are here, that you are moving. In Jesus' name, amen.